Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Jesus' offer of living water as told in John 7, 37-52. We talk about the significance of the Holy Spirit as living water and wonder about what it means when Jesus says that living water will flow out from the heart of believers. Is it possible that we can be sources of living water? We notice that the religious leaders reject the idea of Jesus as Messiah simply because he comes from Galilee. And we wonder whether we, too, sometimes miss the amazing things that God is doing in our midst because we get too wrapped up in the fixed meaning of Scripture. And we wrestle with the tension between religious scholars and the common people in that day and in our own. How might it be possible to embrace the wisdom of the people while also guarding against dangerous theologies. All that and more in today's Bible Worm. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. My kid has been um, doing this thing in the car where I don't even know how this got started. We were on a long journey. She was bored. We started doing this thing where there is a there's a Christmas tree on the back of a camel. This started over the holidays, which were quite a while ago now. Um, and there's a Christmas tree on the back of a camel. And then there is like a Christmas tree decorating monkey. And then she tells the Christmas tree decorating monkey what to put on the Christmas tree. And then is it in the car? Yeah. Like in her imagination. Yeah. Well, yeah, I figured there wasn't a camel. <laughs> there's not an actual yeah. <laughs> Christmas tree camel. Phew. Yeah. Okay. So she's just talking to them. Like, it's not clear where they are. Like, they exist somewhere in time and space. But, you know, like, the details are not all that urgent. Mm-hmm. And then the Christmas tree monkey puts the Christmas tree decorations on the tree. And then she asks the, the camel if he likes it. And, she, and he's like, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and so, like, here we are weeks and months later. And we're still playing the Christmas tree decorating game on the way, on the way, to, on the way to preschool. I would be so tempted. Are you the voice of the camel? I'm all the voices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. This great. is what I do. I, I, I'm I the mean, voices of all the things. I want. I want to know what happens if the camel doesn't like what the monkey puts on the tree. <laughs> yeah, but my the, my version of the camel loves everything. You know, it's a very, very affable camel. Very affable camel. As I mean, no, I guess camels really probably aren't affable. I know. Mm-hmm. I was like, as camels are, how do we know? Yeah, we don't know. Anyway, this morning we saw this little scraggly leafy tree on the way, like when we stopped in the uh, on the way to preschool and she started talking to this tree and she's like, you would make a great Christmas tree. But it turns out this tree was is kind of self-conscious because he, <laughs> he doesn't have leaves this time of year. And so he sang this little song and it went, I wish I wasn't evergreen so everyone could see just how pretty I can be. But I'm deciduous, <laughs> don't you know? I have to lose my leaves so new ones can grow. <laughs> and it just made me laugh. It made me laugh so much. So let me tell you how this kind of thing has played out for me now having teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> no, 
it's the very ways that they um, completely altered our brains because you have this is like a survival tactic in living with small people. Yeah, it is precisely what they will mock you for. So, <laughs> yeah, it just is what it is. That's I still think funny. it's worth it, and I don't mind some mocking. Yeah, no, I think like that's like two thirds of my personality is <laughs> like being mockable. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Good stories. I don't know that anyone cares about the songs I have trees sing to my kids, but that is what I have to talk about these days. Yeah. Because I am trapped in my it's home. It's real. We're getting real. Mm-hmm. We're getting mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Jesus gets a little real today, too, in our text, which uh, is another, I mean, it's kind of, it's another conflict text, as much of John is. Mm-hmm. And we're in chapter seven, verses 37 to 52 which is another speech of Jesus, which he gives back in Jerusalem at the temple. I suggested that we should read the beginning of chapter seven just to set some context for us. And so we're going to read chapter seven, verse one to 10, before we read the actual text for today. And we're just going to use that by way of sort of giving us some background for this text. Mm -hmm. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Sounds good. All right, here we go. John chapter seven, verses one to 10. I'm reading in the Common English Bible. After this, Jesus traveled through Galilee. He didn't want to travel in Judea because the Jewish authorities wanted to kill him. When it was almost time for the Jewish festival of booths, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see the amazing works that you do. Those who want to be known publicly don't do things secretly. Since you can do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers said this because even they didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, For you, any time is fine, but my time hasn't come yet. The world can't hate you. It hates me, though, because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I'm not going to this one because my time hasn't come yet. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers left for the festival, he went too, not openly, but in secret. Okay, so I think where I want to start is just by the setting here. We've seen John doing all the way through, like he sets things at festivals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think where I want to start us out is just to see if you can give us a little background on the Festival of Booths. Yeah. Could you just give us a little background on on what it is and what we need to know about it? Yeah, 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 sure. So it is a festival in the fall. It's called the Festival of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And like most festivals, it has sort of an, an agricultural layer, a seasonal layer in terms of what's growing on, go, what's going on in the crop season. And it also has a layer where it's tied to the Jewish story in some ways. So Sukkot is tied agriculturally to the fall harvest, which is like mm-hmm. the big one, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a big harvest. <laughs> yeah. And so in that way, people who were harvesting during this time of year, it was such a so, so pressing, like the growth was so considerable and the time so important that they would build these temporary structures so they could sleep near the crops and, you know, get up as oh. soon as it's light and harvest, 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 and then just go back and sleep for their night in their little, you know, semi-sheltered Yeah, I didn't areas. know that part of that story. And then if you're looking at the, at the Jewish story, this then gets mapped onto the idea of the 40 years that the Jews were traveling in the desert and didn't have any kind of permanent structure over them, that everything was this sort of fragile quasi-shelter from the elements, but there's this sense of sort of openness and vulnerability and interdependence. 
I feel reading this and reading the text sort of as it unfolds after this, I feel a stronger pull in some ways to the to the agricultural yeah. story. And so I just want to lean into that for a moment and and try to think about what's happening. I mean, they're, they're in the desert. A good harvest was never a given mm-hmm. anywhere really in the world, but especially in the desert. You know, if you had a season that was particularly dry or there was an invasion of locusts or some other bug, like you might not have crops to get you through yeah. through the next season. And so Sukkot was was really a moment to sort of be just grateful for abundance and pray for continued abundance and to really be aware that you can do everything right as a mm-hmm. farmer and you may or may not get crops because we're not driving this train. And I think I think that some of those some of those themes will pop up a little bit more later especially with there's some emphasis on water and that's yeah. water in the desert man is everything is everything. That's so helpful Amy. I really appreciate all of that and especially where you ended up because this text is another text. We've already had one a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago where Jesus talks about living water and here we're going to have another one. Uh, here we have living water set in the festival of booths or Sukkot, uh, which itself celebrated water. I think in both of those senses that you're talking about, one water that makes the harvest possible, Mm -hmm. the other water that makes survival in the desert possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so when we talk about Sukkot, like wasn't water part of the actual celebration? Yeah. So then once we got to a period in history where where the celebration involved like a temple, right? Yeah. Once they get to mm-hmm. the point in history where there's a temple and part of the festival is to travel to the temple and, you know, offer sacrifice and all of that. There was, do you, I mean, I guess you do know, there was a, I was going to ask if you know what a wadi is. <laughs> I don't know if our <laughs> listeners know what a wadi yeah. is. It's it's sort of like a reservoir, like it's a naturally occurring reservoir, but you yeah. can also create one that's, it's almost like a giant rain bucket <laughs> yeah. that, when there's abundant rain, it will flow in and be filled with fresh water, and then eventually it would dry up. But so as part of the celebration of abundance and sort of trust that there will be more abundance, at the temple, they would they had a golden pitcher. They would fill it with water from this particular reservoir that was right around the temple called the mm-hmm. Pool of Siloam and, and pour it out. And it was it was just it was it was an overwhelmingly joyful expression of trust and abundance and yeah 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 so this we've seen you know in the christian story in general but in john especially taking things from the jewish tradition and kind of recontextualizing them in this new ministry of jesus and here we're going to see that tradition the pool of water of siloam and the celebration mm-hmm. of water at sukkot and jesus is going to try to do something that continues that tradition but alters it into relevance to his own ministry. So we'll get back to that in a few minutes when we get into the meat of the text. The other Mm -hmm. thing that's in these first verses that's just so interesting to me is Jesus's brothers. And I think in this text, brothers means his actual brothers, not his like brothers. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Yeah. I I read it not as his disciples, but as his actual family. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anywhere else, at least not that I'm aware of, does John use the term brothers as a reference to disciples. So Mm -hmm. I think it means literally his brothers. Say, hey, we're going to go to the festival. You should come to the festival and, you know, do your stuff there <laughs> so yeah. that people yeah. there, you know, you, you got to have your coming out party. And Jesus, 
first decides not to go, or tells him he's not going, and then he sort of sneaks sneaks away in private to go to the festival. I just find that whole kind of background. He, we're going to have Jesus at the festival, but he said he wasn't coming, and then he then he's just going to show up. And any, any thoughts about that sort of hesitation on the part of Jesus? It's, I mean, the other... The other thing within that that's so fascinating to me is that the text says the brothers basically say, like, if you got it, flaunt it. You know, yeah. like, if you can do this stuff, you might yeah. as well let people know you can do it. What's the point if you're not yeah. going to come out and be public with this? But then it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Yeah. Like, so they didn't. I don't, that's the piece that I'm like, wait, what is their motivation? Do they think that. Oh, I. I it just, that, again, like, colors the whole story. So there's, like, what's yeah. going on for Jesus that he says, this is not my time and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it so publicly, but I am yeah. actually going to do it. And then there's also the brothers that I don't quite understand their what's going on in their yeah. minds. Yeah, their it's line is so, like, moment. those who want to be known publicly don't do things secretly. Like, that's a pretty harsh, that's a pretty biting line. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus's mother said to him at the, like that, that interaction yeah. at the wedding in Cana where she says, hey, you, you need to do something. And Jesus says, it's not my time. It's not my time. There, I thought my impression was she really thought he could do something and should. And he was saying, not yeah. my time. Here, I read it as his brothers kind of are, are doubtful that he can actually do this thing. And so they're goading him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to me, that's just sort of the nature of, brothers <laughs> it's like yeah. you know if you had a brother yeah. who claim, was claiming to be a miracle worker you know you would probably give him a hard time about it uh, true that is that's <laughs> that is true and it's interesting that i i love that comparison to the story at the wedding because he says it's not my time and then he does do what his mother asks but he does it really very much in secret yeah and as this story unfolds he goes in secret but it's not like he's trying to blend into the crowd ultimately. Yeah. Like yeah. ultimately he does take this public, take on this public teaching. He, yeah. It has been interesting. We've talked several several weeks now about how the signs that he does up until the feeding of the 5,000 really. But even that one, I think arguably you could say like it wasn't entirely clear. But anyway, we've been talking about how the miracles themselves, even though they are miraculous, have been very subtle and people don't actually know they're happening at the time yeah. and they have to piece it together after. And so I wonder if there's this sort of sense that, uh, you know, like, yes, there's a miraculous interpretation of what's been happening, but there's also an entirely plausible other, like, well, the the mm-hmm. bridegroom just had extra wine in the cellar, yeah. you know, or, yeah. or the royal official son just got better. Right. Was healed. Right. It wasn't, it was not, the dots were not all the way connected. Right. There was not a soup, you, you know, it would not necessarily hold up in a court of law. So the, those who believed it, believed it, but those who didn't yeah. want to believe it have perfectly yes. plausible ways of explaining everything. And the, the brothers are kind of saying like, you know, you got, you got to do it now. Jesus says again, it's not yet my time. Yeah. My time hasn't come yet. Mm-hmm. And then, but then he's going to end up going and, and doing it anyway. Yeah. One of the things that just makes me laugh is we're going to see in just a second is Jesus goes from it's not my time, I'm not going to like what we're getting ready to read is Jesus like <laughs> giving a big right. sermon in the temple at the festival. Like he he's a little bit like one extreme or the other in, the, yeah. in this gospel. Yeah. And I, and I wonder reading this, like, was he... 
Was that his plan when he went? Was he conflicted? Was he, um, yeah, because it does seem like it does, it is really from one extreme to the other. It's yeah. not my time. And then it's like, grab the mic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I keep going back to the anointing of David text that we talked about way back in First Samuel, where the anointing takes place, it appears at a public festival, but only a few people know that it's actually happening. And we talked about yeah. that, like, public secrets thing. Yeah. John has felt very much that way to me, kind of up until right now and, and yeah. what's about to happen. And then it's sort of like, okay, now at the festival, here's the thing. Although I guess Jesus also has done a big thing at the temple back in chapter two, where he drove out all the animals and, and shut, <laughs> shut down Passover. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway. yeah, there, there is, there's a real tension there. The combination of sort of these open secrets and also then these public demonstrations and there, there's a disconnect that's happening a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's probably enough background for the text. That's our main text for today. So the text as a whole is 37 to 52. I'll start out by reading 37 to 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted, All who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scriptures said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. Jesus said this concerning the Spirit. Those who believed in him would soon receive the Spirit, but they hadn't experienced the Spirit yet since Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. That's unlike a childhood clear. tongue twister to say experience the Spirit. How many can say that five times real fast? Experience the Spirit. Uh, yeah. Okay, so this is where the setting of the text to me makes mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. There we're, we're on the last day of the festival. There's water being used in this way that you have described. Jesus stands up and says, if you want water, like, come over here. How do you make sense of what Jesus says here? If you want living water, come to me. Do you connect that to the the festival in any any kind of way? You know, as we've seen before, there's, it's, it's a really compelling, I guess, metaphor is the right word, or like just a, a human experience of deep need like of just the word thirst has a different like urgency about it than a lot of other ways you could describe something that you need or you feel like you need or something you really want or something you know and so I feel like Sukkot already the like the ritual the holiday already takes us part of the way there by saying like you do need actual water for your actual physical sustenance. And you will feel pain if you don't have that water. You'll feel thirst. And then there is, you know, the connection to, and and it is God who who provides this water and is God mm-hmm. who cares for you in this way and who gets you through the experience of the desert and, and all of that. And then, I mean, in some ways, it's just like a natural further opening of that metaphor, I think, for 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 Jesus to say that anyone who's thirsty come to me to like go all the way to that sort of spiritual thirst that human beings all have. Yeah. Do you see more going on there than that? Would you build on that? No, I, I love that. And you know, it was remind the way you were talking about it was reminding me of the Isaiah 55 text. Ho, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. 
that we mm. read back in the fall. And, you know, in some ways, I think this is trying to connect to that. Like the, those who like in that text, we talked about how maybe it's talking about actual water. And also there mm-hmm. is this other layer on top of it about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the water that one needs to to live, not just physically, but also spiritually. And here Jesus seems to be, I, I'm not entirely clear. I, I'll have to ask you in a minute. Uh, whether Jesus is claiming to be that water or claiming to have access to that water. Mm. But whatever the case, I think, you know, one can read that Isaiah text in the background here and say, this is that thing we were talking about. And yeah. I've got it on offer. And and here I am in the temple offering it to you. So so come so come and get it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple a couple times in Isaiah that this kind of language is used. I was I thought you were going to say Isaiah 44 that has a uh, verse 3 even as I pour water on thirsty soil and rain upon dry ground so will I pour my spirit on your offspring my mm. blessing upon your posterity. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a, it's a really powerful it's a powerful metaphor that Jesus is is tapping into and offering to folks. And we're seeing these connections that the gospel writer John is making. You know, we saw that text that said, my word will go out and will do what its purpose. And then now Jesus is the word. And then we've seen this thing about living water that will satisfy the people. And now Jesus is offering the water. And, mm. you know, we've seen the manna story and the bread. And now Jesus is the bread. Like, it's really interesting mm-hmm. the way that Jesus in the gospel of John is taking all of these Hebrew scripture metaphors mm-hmm. and retooling them to be about himself as the fulfillment of all these things that, mm-hmm. that have been been promised along the way. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned that there is some ambiguity about whether Jesus is the water or the water comes from Jesus or exactly what the water is doing. In the CEB, as the scriptures said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. So if you if you follow the CEB, what's the NRSV right there? In- the NRSV is different. Yeah, what is As it? As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Yes. Those are the two kind of translational possibilities. And the Greek is actually a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. So in the NRSV, if I understood it correctly, it's actually the one who believes yes. the water springs up in them. Yes. And in the CEB, (laughs) the water is springing up from Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is in the the Greek, you can't really, like some scholars go one way, some scholars go the other way. And it's not the sort of thing where it's like, if you only knew how to read Greek, (laughs) you could settle this. It's sort of like the The Greek Greek itself contains multitudes. So let's read it. Let's start out reading it the CEB way since, since this is the text that we're using as our main text today. The scriptures said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. So in that translation, Jesus seems to be saying the water's coming out of me Mm -hmm. and scripture promised that. If you read Mm -hmm. it that way, where does that lead you? You know, the first thought I had was like, wait, is Jesus the water? No, Jesus is not the water, but Jesus is the source of the water. So, so that, I mean, I feel like that would line up pretty darn well with the other (laughs) things, the other ideas I have in my head from John, which is that, 
you know, all these all these metaphors for things that you will need in the world, everything that we thought, you thought you would need Torah, you thought that you would need bread, you thought that you would need water. Yeah. Actually, the only thing you need is Jesus. Like all of those metaphors, we're talking yeah. about this, we're talking about Jesus, and it can be hard to wrap your head around. Actually, all of them were referring to the same yeah. thing. Yeah. But I think that's, I think that's, that's what I'm starting to think is the, is the message here. Yeah. So in that sense, it would make a lot of sense to me to say like, you don't need water from that, you know, reservoir. You don't need water from, you know, like that, that I'm, I'm the only thing you need, baby. Yeah. And if you think about that in the context of here, we're taking the golden pitcher and we're getting water in the pool of Siloam and we're pouring it on the temple. Jesus is saying, if you really want water, come to me. Clearly, he is making a move there to say this thing that we've been celebrating in one way now with the arrival of me yeah. is to be celebrated in a different way. Right. And the, I'm, I'm struck in that metaphor by the idea that these waters are flowing from yeah. Jesus. It's not just that Jesus has them, but like there's yeah. this real sense of like, abundance that Sukkot celebrates, but it also celebrates almost precisely Mm. because there's a recognition that that abundance is not a given. So this thing you were talking about earlier, where one of the reasons you celebrate is because every summer you're worried that there's not going to be enough water. And so you're grateful that there was enough water. Yeah. Starts us out with a sense of limitation where Jesus seems to be saying, it just flows, man. It just keeps coming. Right, and you so don't we, need that. Right, you, I mean, in my experience, I guess spiritually, there it's not that you have to have a sense of limitation, but that sense of vulnerability can really yeah. open open me to gratitude and sort of sense of yeah. connection. But it also can go the other way, you yeah. know. And I feel like this is coming at it from the other side. Like you, you can let all of that go and just trust always that there will be abundant access. Yeah. I appreciate your saying it. And I use the word limitation, but but I think what I mean is scarcity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand what you mean. Scarcity and abundance. And, you know, I always think like scarcity bad, abundance good. <laughs> like yeah. That's sort of my, but I, I appreciate what you're saying where there is actually something about scarcity that also produces gratitude. It, you know, it's reminding me almost of these uh, texts that we encounter in Deuteronomy when the, the Israelites are about to enter the land. And all of a sudden, Moses gets so serious about, like, the imperative to express thanks and the imperative, like, just everything gets very serious. And I think it's precisely because the vulnerabilities and and scarcity and clear interdependence that was present for them in the desert, once they're in the land, there's this fear that people will forget their interdependence and start to think they're doing it themselves. Yeah. So I don't know. I, that, that maybe takes us off track. I think there's a, a spiritual role for <laughs> scarcity is such a negative word, but for uh, recognition of our vulnerability. But I also, yeah. I see what, I think I see what Jesus is doing here with that. What you're saying takes me back again to Isaiah 55. It, and if you remember that text that we, when we talked about, the first verse, 55.1, is just come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have mm-hmm. no money, come mm-hmm. by and eat. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. right there is mm-hmm. scarcity and abundance, right? Yeah. That uh, the world works with a sense of scarcity. And in fact, there is, in God, there is abundance. And what you, you're, but, but your appreciation for abundance only works when you recognize this, the scarcity of the world in which you live. Yeah, yeah. 
so the the good news is like if you if we live in a world in which we perceive all of these things, both material and spiritual, as being scarce, then that then the good news is there's plenty. Yeah. If we get used to the plenty, then I think there is. I'm not sure the warning is necessarily in this text that we're currently reading, but I do think you're you're right that it it is there, especially in Deuteronomy. What are you going to do when you get to a land that's flowing with milk and honey? Right. Right. Okay. So if you read. That way, then we sort of come out there. Jesus is the source of abundant living water. If you read it the NRSV's way, can you just Mm -hmm. read it again? Yeah. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Yeah. So if you follow that translation, where does that lead you? There's there's almost this like, I know self-sufficiency is not the right, is not. It's not the right phrase to capture it, but there is this sense that you can be your, somehow you can be your own source of abundance or mm-hmm. the abundance can spring up within you through your belief. I don't know. It, I feel like this can't be right because it seems like it takes Jesus out a half step, mm-hmm. but you're still a believer, so mm-hmm. not a full step. I don't know. How, how do you, I know you, I've had this sort of self-sufficiency issue before in these texts yeah. and, and you've helped me through that. How do you see that? Well, I don't know that I, like, I'm not sure I'm helping you through anything, but I do think we have different, like we, we sort of have different refractions of the text in ways mm-hmm. that I think are interesting. And I, I, I'm honestly not sure which one is like right, right or not right. But, you know, this reminds me of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman back in John 4 uh, in verse 14, he said to her, the water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. Mm-hmm. Maybe actually, if you read the CEBs and the NRSVs and hold them together, that's mm-hmm. where you end up. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the source and mm-hmm. it creates in the believer a spring a of water spring, that bubbles up. Right. Mm-hmm. A spring that is continuous. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't require the ongoing, like Jesus yeah. doesn't keep having to pour out the water because you now have a spring in you that produces water of its own accord. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have done that without Jesus. Yeah. But once it gets started, it, you can't stop it. And I, you know, I see what mm-hmm. you're saying about, you, one can read that as self-sufficiency. Now I've got my spring. I don't need, <laughs> like, <laughs> I got what guys. I need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat my flesh and drink my spring water. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. I tend to read it as, you know, springs are not, Springs do not produce for themselves, right? Springs produce to sustain what is around them. And so in, in my reading, the nature of becoming a spring or the nature of pouring out living water. Oh, that it would be like, like it would, it would be an offering sort of to other people. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. The rivers will flow out from with, from the believer. Like it, this brings me yeah. back to like Ezekiel's, you know, the river of life in Ezekiel. Yeah. Where it just flows out from the temple and it goes out and, and it, but it doesn't just, you know, it goes out and it brings fertility and life and abundance to the whole world. Now, sort of the way that I sort of read this text is like, okay, so Jesus is the first of that. Mm-hmm. And then the believers also become part of that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then when you get enough mm-hmm. believers, they're just, there's this living water gushing out all over the place. Yeah, it's like the, those rituals where like one person starts with a candle and then two people light their candle from the right. person with the candle and then you can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's nice. I like that. I think this sort of tension is interesting that we're talking about where one can say, now I've got living water, like I don't need anything else. Or one can say, now I'm a source of living water. Let me go like share it with the world. Yeah. And people do respond in both people of those ways. People respond in both of those ways. And, you know, I, I obviously have my preference, which I think you also should share <laughs> yeah. about which way uh, you ought to respond to that. So I think in my own mind, I, you know, I gestured to this just a minute ago, but if we take the ambiguity of the Greek and we, we try to hold the ambiguity as meaningful, that actually produces the richest mm-hmm. reading, which is to say the living water source is in Jesus. It flows out of him. But then once the believer takes in that water, the believer becomes a spring that produces themselves. Yeah. And so there is now there is even more water aplenty. I want to hold it that way, but I don't, I, the text doesn't require us. I think we can choose one or the other, or we can try to hold them both together. I like that a lot. I love being able to hold on to ambiguities in the original language. <laughs> Me too. Shocking, I know. It's like my main thing, yeah. <laughs> now, John here, who has been very ambiguous and circumspect, is very direct, actually, in 39. Jesus said this about the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have been wondering what the water is this whole time, we've talked about it several times. Let along me help the way. you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the spirit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, in the moment, in the narrative moment, the spirit is not yet available to people. But mm-hmm. in the moment of the reader, after Jesus' resurrection, the spirit is available. So in the story time, this living water hasn't happened yet. But in the time in which we're reading it, it is available. So uh, if, if we connect then the conversation about living water to the spirit, which is, which is now made available, where does that, where does that lead you? Gosh, Bobby, I don't know. Is there, is there a, is there a Trinitarian like theology at this point? You know, the Trinitarian formulation of Nicaea, which is going to say three persons in one substance that is not developed, that, but yeah. you can clearly but you can talk see, about spirit without that. Yeah, and we've already seen like the word was God. Yeah, right. Yeah. And now the spirit flows out from the sun. Like you can see that John is yeah. trying to think about how all of these are connected yeah. and they're yeah. different but the same. He yeah. could not have given us a Nicene formulation. Yeah, but he he's clearly got some sort of nascent version of it going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I would, I mean, going back to my little like candle metaphor, I I don't know, I think so much in images, I'm gonna have to draw some pictures of this. But that idea that like something will, when you believe something will sort of alight upon you, like the, this, this, quote, unquote, the spirit, I say, quote, Mm -hmm. unquote, because I don't know exactly what I mean by that. And that, that gives you this. That, that ma- it makes you a source. It gives you this, like it's like you, I picture someone like sort of starting to glow a little bit, like having mm-hmm. this other emanation within their person. Yeah. But I, I but I'm, I'm, I'm in way too deep for myself here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to drown in these waters. So let me ask you, how does the addition of the spirit, the idea of the spirit into this, language shift things for you or I mean it's interesting because it takes me back to the Hebrew scriptures and Mm. these passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah where where God 
promises to give a new spirit to the people mm. so that the sort of human nature that can't follow the Torah is going to be replaced yeah. by a God-given spirit which just lives the Torah life without having to think so hard about it. That is so, and, I had not made that connection at all, but now I'm going to mm. have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then what's happening is Jesus, well, John is saying in this event of Jesus, this pouring out of the living water, that is where God gives the new spirit to the people that has been promised already mm. all the way back in the exile in the prophets of Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and others. And he, and so here it is. And that be, it, it becomes part of, like it, it comes through Jesus, but it's offered to the people. It comes out from the people. And it can't happen until... <laughs> until Jesus goes through his stuff, right? This, right. That described here is the glorification. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think that's It's important. just so like cosmic. It's so like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that last point you're making is important that it's, Jesus is not saying here, the spirit is immediately available to you. Yeah. Jesus is saying, once I have been glorified, then the spirit is, is available to you. Or John is saying that. I don't know if Jesus is saying that, but John is saying that. Yeah. So is the idea that while Jesus is, during this short time that Jesus is here on earth with them, that Jesus, coming to Jesus is the, is coming to the the water, the living water. But then after that time, mm-hmm. then, then there's the spirit instead because you, is, is that what it's saying? I love that. Yeah, I hadn't quite put it together so clearly, but I but that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. So in the lifetime of Jesus, Jesus is the one who offers this living water to people. Once Jesus is uh, crucified and resurrected, then the people carry on. Like the the mm. the spirit of Jesus now that has moved in the world is shared from person to person. I think that's right, mm-hmm. and that that brings us back to the spring. It does. And I, okay, I know we probably need to move on, but this is my last question. It's just a tiny one. Do you, do you see any similarity in the way that this, this text is talking about the Torah and the traditions that came before Jesus and is saying like, those were right for their time. And now it's Jesus. And then it will be the spirit. That doesn't Mm -hmm. seem, uh, uh, yeah. No. Well, because the spirit certainly doesn't replace Jesus in the Christian right mind. Like to me the promise is constant, the mode of the promise sort mm. of shifts. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is necessary for for John's interpretation is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that makes all of this possible. So it's not that there's anything that's like, here was the thing, and then it got replaced by this thing, and then got replaced by the other thing. Mm-hmm. It's like there was one thing. It was a promise that Ezekiel was talking about. Mm-hmm. Jesus brought that into the world. That When Jesus is resurrected, then the spirit is what mm-hmm. keeps that moving in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't read it as what Ezekiel said was sufficient to his time exactly. I read it as what Ezekiel said was sufficient, and here it is happening. And Ezekiel is very vague about how how mm-hmm. it's going to happen. And so yeah. John is just saying, well, here's how it's going to happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or how it right. has happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not something mm-hmm. different than what Ezekiel says. It is what Ezekiel said. But it's the sort of Christian version of yeah. the fulfillment of Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hey everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast, and do we have an exciting deal for you. This month, you can receive all the benefits of being a Bible Worm subscriber for the introductory price of just $4. Throughout the month of February, subscribers at any level will receive early access to episodes, as well as weekly liturgies and video lectures to accompany each podcast episode for the entire month. Plus, you'll get a terrific Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of your friends and family. There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time. If you want to take advantage of this special offer, visit us at patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 for the month. If you've always wondered what it's like to be a Bible Worm subscriber, we hope you'll join us in this special offer. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay, so then picking up in verse 40. When some in the crowd heard these words, they said, This man is truly the prophet. Others said, he's the Christ. But others said, the Christ can't come from Galilee, can he? Didn't the scripture say that the Christ comes from David's family and from Bethlehem, David's village? So the crowd was divided over Jesus. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one grabbed him. Okay, so here we have first the people's response. And there is, on the one hand, belief. We get the words prophet and the words Christ or Messiah. And then we get this objection about Galilee, which we've seen in a different version earlier with with Nathaniel all the way back in chapter one. What do you make of this sort of the division that we see developing in the in the crowd here? I mean, it just strikes me as like the claim that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, is really audacious. Like that's yeah. a it's it's either true or offensive. Like yeah. there's no <laughs> yeah. There's no like middle ground yeah. for it because of its bigness. And I'm fascinated by the the focus of some people on this like qualifying detail. You know, yeah. they have this one detail that as far as they know. Okay, let me ask you this. John doesn't have a birth story for Jesus. He does not. Mm-hmm. Right? Does does do you think that this text believes Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the people just don't know that or that Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem and that detail is they're getting hung up on the wrong detail. Does that question make sense? Yeah. The way that I read it, that question makes total sense is that there actually was a problem with the historical Jesus and his uh-huh. claim to be Messiah uh-huh. Uh-huh. because he was from Nazareth. Yeah. And so Mark just doesn't deal with it. Matthew and Luke, in their own ways, give Jesus a birth in Bethlehem, even though he's from Nazareth, but they do it in different ways. John, I think, is owning the fact that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. He's not giving us a story that sort of smooths it out. It deals with that, yeah. And then he's just saying, like, what on earth difference does that make? Yeah. So he's sort of squarely, you know, just rejecting the whole idea that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. That's the way I read it. I love, I mean, I just, th- I, I love that. And I think it's really, I don't, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's an interesting potential, I don't know if corrective is the right word, but I mean, I know that that's still today in many of our religious communities, we get super hung up on things in scripture that are, that feel like clear and measurable, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
even when they see they may seem to fly in the face of a whole host of other teachings and experiences we have in the world, we can get really hung up on the clear and measurable thing. And I feel like that's that's what is being critiqued here. Yes. Yeah, I know. I think that's exactly right. And we've talked along the way about how John seems to be critical of literalists. And we talked about mm-hmm. it in the Nicodemus mm-hmm. story and, and mm-hmm. other and a little bit in the woman at the well story. Here, I think John is critiquing biblical literalists mm-hmm. who, you know, if you're, if you're looking for Messiah, you should look for the kind of things that the Messiah does in the world, not the check boxes that are in the scriptures. And I think mm-hmm. John is, that's his point is look what's happening. What do your check boxes matter? And so he's taken a dig at those of us who go back and say, here are the specific things said in scripture, mm-hmm. which make us overlook sort mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. things that God is doing in the world. I yeah. think that I think that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it sort of unmoors things a little bit. Like it's a little bit of a scary thought to say like, well, I mean, any detail in the scripture really could play out differently in the long run if this, if God decides to do something right. new and different or unexpected. But Jesus, as we've been saying, is very much, at least in John's understanding, in line with what the whole scripture has been saying. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. not in that narrow detail. And I feel like for me, it's even more than a sort of like slap on the wrist to literalists because it's not saying, it's not literally true, but it's metaphorically true in this other way. It's just saying, stop it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just stop it. I'm not going to give you a story about how that's sort of metaphorically true. Just stop it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. So this has created controversy Mm -hmm. in the crowd. And I mean- Rightly so. So you've got one set of folks saying, look what he's doing and saying and like the power that this has. And another group saying, look at what scripture says. Yeah. And they're not able to make those mesh. Yeah. And so you've got a division in the crowd. Yeah. And we've seen that in last week's text where people heard the teaching and they said, this is too difficult. We've, we've seen that along the way. Mm-hmm. That this thing that's happening creates divisions among people. Yeah. What do you make of the detail that no one laid <laughs> hands on him? I mean, I, I go two ways. Like, this is the crowd that we're talking about, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's two ways that I go. One is even the people who reject him are so awed by his presence that they, are, they don't want to mess with him. Mm. The other way that I read it is, you know, Jesus has said several times, like, what business is this of mine? And I think that could be the response is like, okay, well, this guy's a heretic, but like, what Mm -hmm. business is that of mine? Like Mm -hmm. somebody else needs to deal with this. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to, it's like the bystander effect, right? Like this thing is happening. It shouldn't be happening, but it's not my. But what do we do about it? Right. And at least here, Jesus is not saying that he is the Messiah. Jesus is saying, let all who are thirsty come to me and the one who believes in me drink. Yeah. But it's the people who are trying to, who are wrestling with the ramifications of that. Yes. What does that mean? Now that's in, yeah, that's interesting. Because what Jesus has done, like calling himself the source of living water at Sukkot on the last day of the mm-hmm. festival while mm-hmm. water is being celebrated in another way, there's some clear implications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Jesus has mm-hmm. not made a one-to-one connection, right? People not are having to make anyway. the connection themselves. Yeah, people are yeah. having to make the connection and argue about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in verse 45, then, we get the guards, who we didn't actually know were there until now, I, I think. Mm-hmm. The guards returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked, why didn't you bring him? 
The guards answered, No one has ever spoken the way he does. The Pharisees replied, Have you too been deceived? Have any of the leaders believed in him? Has any Pharisee? No, only this crowd which doesn't know the law, and they are under God's curse. Nicodemus, who was one of them and had come to Jesus earlier, said, Our law doesn't judge someone without first hearing him and learning what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not from Galilee too, are you? Look it up and you will see that the prophet doesn't come from Galilee. So now we have a sort of interesting, the officials respond in one way. They perceive the populist response in another way. The guards are kind of caught in this interesting middle position mm-hmm. where they're supposed to bring him in, but they, they kind of think there's something going on here too. So we've got this sort of interesting, like complex relationship of elites and non-elites and crowds and officials and all around, around Jesus. What do you think of the Pharisees' response here, basically saying like, you, you're buying this stuff that these crowds are saying? Yeah, I mean, okay, I did a little exercise, I did a little thought exercise yeah. when I was reading this. Because the Pharisees are just, they're just portrayed as a bunch of jerks in the, you know, in mm-hmm. these texts. And so I was like, okay, let's do the, let's try the most empathetic reading of these, you know, religious scholars and people who, you know, really study and think about this stuff yeah. all the time versus people who don't. Yeah. My most empathetic reading is that they're saying, like, it's almost like the way that I <laughs> that I respond to my teenagers when they've seen some new meme online. Like, you are being misled. And if you knew more about the world, you would see that, you know, false information is being yeah. propagated to a group of people who are vulnerable because they don't know better. Yeah. So... When I'm in a situation where I feel like false e- false information is being put out to manipulate people who don't know any better, yeah, I do have that response of like, we have got to cut off the source of the false yeah. information. Now, realistically, you know, again, like as a parent of teens, you can't really cut off, you know, you, you have to, whatever, that system doesn't really work. But I understand the impulse to say like, you are, you're being, you're being taken for a ride here. Yeah. And I want to protect you because I care about you and I care about what's true. Yeah. I don't think that's what the gospel thinks of the Pharisees, but I don't think it's impossible to think that they have genuine concern about what's happening here. Concern beyond their own power. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And I appreciate your your saying it that way. And I mean, you and I are both PhDs. You know, we are intellectuals at some level or another who, you know, I, I see people interpreting the Bible in problematic ways all the time. Mm-hmm. And I want to shut, like my instinct is I want to shut that down. I think for the, for the good of humanity, right? <laughs> right. So I, I think that empathetic reading of the Pharisees is, is exactly right. Like there is a false thing or some, something that according to what they understand is false. Right. Their best understanding of this based on their life of constant yes. study is yeah. that that is not what the text says. And I imagine yeah. that many people listening to this podcast have heard scripture used in ways that yeah. it is clear to you that is not what it says. Yes, and what people are saying it says is dangerous. 
Right. Which is what the Pharisees are saying here. This thing that people are saying about Jesus is dangerous. Yeah. So I feel like that's the most empathetic read. And then there's the middle of the line that sort of, they do genuinely believe that he's wrong. And it's a little bit like paternalistic. Like we don't trust the uneducated crowds to, you know, be able to assess these claims. So that just makes them kind of like, I don't know, snobby, but maybe not (laughs) power hungry monsters. (laughs) Or you could read them as power hungry monsters. In my mind, the power-hungry monsters approach, which maybe is what John is pointing us to, I don't know, is the least useful, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's a very sort of wooden, you know, like just very dismissive. And so you can read them that way, but I think it's to our own detriment. Even if we end up thinking the Pharisees are wrong, Mm -hmm. giving an empathetic reading of why they think what they think, I think is really useful. One of the things that you were making me think about is this work that I do... Well, I do it at Mercy Church. I learned it from this group in South Africa called Ujamaa. Gerald West was the, is the scholar who's sort of been sort of driving this movement since the 80s. He started out in apartheid South Africa, and their sort of proposal was that the church uses its elite control of information to oppress people, and so they want to take the scripture to the people and let the people interpret scripture for themselves and then bring what is learned from the people back to the academy and let the academy and the religious structure learn from the people. And, you know, the academy, as you well know, does not often function that way where we're like, Hey, I wonder what like average person out on the street thinks. But it brings exactly this tension that you are raising, which is some of the things that spread among the people are dangerous and need Mm -hmm. to be sort of shut down. Mm -hmm. And also there is a lot of wisdom among Mm -hmm. regular folks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that our sort of elite training prevents us from seeing things that seem obvious to people without the training who like they think about the text from other places. And so that tension to me is very much alive in this text. How do you keep some sort of like thoughtful, informed interpretation going on, which has its roots in lots and lots of study, while at the same time respecting the wisdom that seems to be emerging among the people without letting things that are like crazy and dangerous run, run loose. Mm-hmm. And it, it is so, t- and I, you know, when I do my work at Mercy Church, people say all sorts of things at Mercy Church. And my approach has mostly been, I'm not going to shut it down unless it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes people will say things about certain groups of people or about certain, you know, identities or certain belief structures. And I'm like, nope, we can't like that is not allowed to be said, <laughs> said here. But it's always this sort of fine line about when do you line. shut things down and when and when do you not? And so I really feel for the Pharisees here. I, I think I function like a Pharisee, like the Pharisees function in this text. Like that's the role that's most comfortable for me in this text is like I'm a serious religious person committed to my tradition, who knows a lot of things. Yeah. And I'm pretty skeptical. And I think there's something good about that, actually. And also, like, sometimes wisdom, oftentimes wisdom does emerge in the crowds. Yes. And so, and so how, do we, how do we manage to be both of those things? A, a learned person who c- can guard <laughs> the tradition while also being open to new possibilities. And that, when you say it like that, it seems really... 
really hard to me. I love that you've had that like real on the ground <laughs> experience trying to do this. I feel like, uh, I mean, not, not everybody, not everybody has. And there, I know I've had, I've had moments of tension and study with people where I just want to say like, that's not what, that's not what that word means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's, it's an interesting thought, but wrong. But yeah, you're, you're right. When to, when to hold back. I feel like it's, I've had to get a little older to yeah. move past the idea that like that, that sort of rigidness to hear, hear ideas that don't come out of yeah. 20 years of study or whatever, but like 20 yeah. years of living in the world and seeing how God moves or doesn't move in the world. And yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Do you make anything of Galilee in particular? So we've, we've seen it invoked as like the Messiah is not from Galilee. Now we hear it invoked as almost like a little bit of an insult. Like, are you mm-hmm. a Galilean too? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it could be like, they said he's from Bethlehem, but he's really was born in Jerusalem or somewhere fancy pants, you know? But it's not that, it's mm-hmm. Galilee. Right. You said you were from New York City, but really you're from Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So do yeah. you read that kind of thing going on here where it's like, I do with the last thing where it's like, what are you from Galilee too? Like, are you, there's this, some like fools are from Galilee or, I mean, I guess it, yeah, that's how, that's how I read it. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's just so interesting to me the way, I mean, we still see this same thing today. Like if you disagree with somebody, then you want to associate them with someone that nobody likes, Yeah, which is damaging to the people that nobody likes and also damaging to the person you're doing that to and also damaging to the community. Yeah, and it's just a way of shutting down the argument entirely. Like, instead of actually having this conversation, because, I mean, Nicodemus raises an issue of Jewish law from Deuteronomy. You know, my translation is a little bit differently, but it says, give them a hearing. You should give the person a hearing. Yours says they should hear them out, whatever. But this is a valid point that the Pharisees should actually be hearing. But instead, they, like, cut him off at his knees by demeaning him, like insulting him. So Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, but also is kind of interested, at least in hearing what's going on. Yeah. And that sort of, it's interesting that it's that insider challenge. uh, And the way to get rid of the insider is to say, you've got a choice here. You can be a Pharisee or you can be a Galilean, but you can't be what you're trying to be. Yeah. What do you make? You know, this is not the first time we've seen Nicodemus. We saw him back in chapter three in the story about being born again from above, where he looked a little... I don't know. John was poking at him a little bit. Yeah. But he comes back here in a kind of a different role. Like, what What do you do with the reappearance of Nicodemus here? I had, I had some trouble understanding what the text wanted me to think of him. Yeah. Because I feel like, on the one hand, this should be a, this is more positive than what the other Pharisees are doing. Yeah. He's saying, we can't just shut this down. We can't just arrest him. Like, our tradition is that you have to hear people out or you have to give people a hearing or, you know, whatever it is exactly that is, is put in here. And so that seems good and fair and like what an upstanding Jew at that time should be doing. But I also, you know, before Nicodemus was sort of made fun of as being kind of simple-minded or naive or whatnot. And, and that made me wonder, like, would a hearing actually do anything in this case? Like, is this sort of a naive, like, 
okay, yes, you should do that. But what's happening here is not something that's going to get clarified in a hearing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I appreciate you raising that sort of tension. And I don't know how I read Nicodemus here. But I still appreciate that he's interested enough mm-hmm. and he's committed enough to the breadth of scripture mm-hmm. to say, this is the next thing. Like, yes, I don't know that he knows where the next thing comes out. Yeah. And maybe he thinks it's probably going to come out with arresting Jesus. I don't know. Like mm-hmm. I can, I could see that, or I could see him having been convinced by his earlier interaction that there's more than that. But just the, like, we need to follow. If we right. say we care about the tradition, we need to follow the tradition. Right. And not just the pieces of the tradition that we like. This to me is also, I mean, it's probably true of me. Uh, people can judge that for themselves. But I, I know lots of so-called biblical literalists uh, who, you know, they're literal about certain things. But then when you're like, Jesus says, if anyone asks for money, you know, you mm-hmm. should give it to them. Or if someone asks for your coat, like, you know, sure, give, your, give them your cloak too. Or love your enemies. Yeah. People always have a reason why we're not supposed to take that literally. (laughs) Yeah. It it drives me crazy. Like, I would actually respect biblical literalists if they were literal about all of those things. Mm -hmm. And I I see Nicodemus a little bit that way here. He's saying, okay, you're you're very much committed to this idea that the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, but you're not like, okay, fine. Yeah. Also be committed to this other thing that's also part of our tradition. Oh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Yeah. How, wherever it would turn out, at least there's a, there's an integrity about. Yeah worldview and approach and you know even if yeah. he's not thinking on that higher plane that John wants people to be thinking on he's yeah he's his case holds together you know he's integrity he's got integrity I actually mm-hmm. do think Nicodemus makes some moves across the gospel we're going to see him I think in the narrative lectionary we he certainly appears one more time in the gospel of John mm. right at the end of Jesus's life and I, I think he's making some moves in a little bit similar to the way we talked about the woman at the well kind of started out in one place. And by the end, she, by the end, she was pretty convinced that Jesus was Messiah. I don't know that Nicodemus yeah. gets there, but he certainly becomes more and more like he starts out curious and then he becomes yeah. more and more respectful. And I just think that's such an interesting model of the person who's like just wants to know more. Yeah, we kind of made fun of him. Not we, but John kind of made fun of him coming to Jesus in the nighttime, and you know. But you got to respect the guy for instead of being upset about this thing he was hearing. It's just he wants to know. He wants. Yeah. He wants to hear. And in some ways, it really it does fit together in an interesting way. With you know, I I spoke about him last time coming at night, maybe because you have a particular responsibility as a leader yeah. to to get some information and know what you're doing before, because people are going to follow you, whatever you do. Yeah. And so we can critique him for going at night, but I would also say like trying to, trying to get more information as a leader before you do anything public is not such a bad thing. Yeah. And I, yeah, I see that. I see that characteristic sort of continuing here that. Yeah. And he's really the, he's, he's the guy in the middle. Like he's the monkey in the middle. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> to, you know, yeah. who's who's trying to go back and forth between these two worlds and no one else is really doing it. All right, Amy. So this text has gotten us into some interesting conversations that was there a point in some different kinds of directions. As we're trying to think about where this text intersects with contemporary life, where are you thinking? Yeah, this has this has raised a lot of really interesting questions for me about 
about different groups trying to talk <laughs> across expanses and and literalism and what that means. I think the most pressing thing to me right now is this idea that I th- I think it is part of human nature that we pay attention to the things that are concrete and measurable. Mm-hmm. And that is not always what we should be paying attention to. I mean, I don't, and, and I see it all over there. I mean, we talked about it happening in our religious communities where, you know, if there is one verse that says, you know, prohibiting sex between men or something like that, people get hyper-focused on that and forget mm-hmm. the whole body of teachings about, you know, about love and compassion and, you know, any other, any other host of things because there's this concrete thing and, and that feels easier sometimes just to do yeah. the concrete thing. But it's so striking to me in this text how that fascination with that one teaching, it's like it, 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 it's a set of blinders. Like they can't see all of these other things that are happening in the world. Sort of like you were talking about that, the public but private mm-hmm. miracles that happen. It, it blinds you to the miracles that are happening around you because you're only looking for that one thing. You're only looking for yeah. that one thing that you expect. And so I'm thinking now, I don't know, I'm thinking about my own life and the ways in which there are certain measurable things that I'm so attuned to that I can block out everything else and I wonder what I miss. Yeah. I really like that, Amy. And I think I think I come out somewhere pretty similar, but getting there through a different opening, mm-hmm. which is this verse that we were talking about, sort of the, what I think is the key verse in this passage rivers of living water will flow out from within him and the ambiguity about is Mm. him Jesus or is him the believer? And thinking back about that conversation, like where I have come out with that is Jesus is the one from whom the living water comes. Mm -hmm. And once that living water has been received in people, then they also become fountains of living water. The spirit bubbles up in them too. And so that means that the spirit comes out from all kinds of people in ways that you might not recognize, or, you know, it might come out from somebody from Galilee, for goodness sake, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like it might come out from all kinds of people, somebody at Mercy Church or somebody who's, you know, a different, on the different side of a political spectrum than you, or Mm -hmm. somebody who you would not, is not as educated as you, or however it might be, or who is more educated than you. And so that notion that people encounter living water and become, have genuine experiences of it, and become sources of living water themselves, to me is really, is really rich. So you need to pay attention to people, no matter who they are, where they're, where they're from, what you think about them, you know, how you relate to them, because they might have something mm-hmm. that is true that you have not recognized as, as true. So we mm-hmm. need to pay attention to each other. Mm-hmm. The problem that that gets us into, as we talked about, is how do you then separate out like, is, then is it just anything anybody says is like, I got to pay attention to that? Or are there things where you can just say, nope, nope, that's not it. Yeah. And for me, the key is the living in that sense of living water. Like the essence of this water, the essence of the spirit is that it brings life. And so when we look around and we see that there are sources of life in places, like there are people who make the world thrive. There are people who, who what they have becomes a source of well-being for other people. They don't, 
you know, they don't produce like negativity and, and mm -hmm. death and destruction in their wake. They, they leave uh, a, a beautiful, fertile life around them. That's, that's living water. So lots of people have stuff to offer, but the people in my mind to pay attention to are where the people who, who their lives are producing life in others. And so where, where do you see life and go find out what, what they're about. That to me is, is, is kind of where, where, where this text leads me. Mm, I love that. And it's got me into, it's got me thinking all these complex thoughts about when we leave complicate, complicated things in our week that are some intricate mixing of yeah. life and suffering. But I guess that's how the world is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of interesting thoughts from this text. I, when I read it the first time, I was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say about that, but. Yeah, I was like, did we talk about living stuff. water already? Yeah. Okay, Amy, so next week we're in John 9, 1 to 41, which is another miraculous sign about a man who is born blind. It's also going to be Transfiguration Sunday in the Christian calendar, which that's sort of, sort of an interesting combination to have Transfiguration Sunday without the, without the Transfiguration. <laughs> <laughs> we like to keep things interesting here. Yeah. Um, the Bible worm, the narrative yeah, lectionary. That's true. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks for a good conversation today, Amy. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church, Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the healing of a man born blind in John 9, 1-41. Until then, keep on digging.